to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in this morning. Well, if you missed the last two weeks, you missed our interview with Josh McDowell. Go to godsolutionshow.com. Again, that's godsolutionshow.com to get the recordings of that interview. Today, we're going to be interviewing Josh's son, Sean, who is also an apologist. He is a teacher at Biola University. Dr. Sean McDowell teaches apologetics there at Biola, and he speaks around the country to churches, schools, and in other types of venues. He is the author, co-author, or editor of over 15 books, including Same-Sex Marriage, A Thoughtful Approach to God's Design for Marriage. He co-authored that with John Stone Street, Is God Just a Human Invention with Jonathan Morrow, and Understanding Intelligent Design, which he co-authored with William Dembski. He's also written multiple books with his father, Josh McDowell, who was on the show last week, including The Unshakable Truth and the updated edition of More Than a Carpenter. Sean is the general editor for Apologetics for a New Generation and the Apologetics Study Bible for Students. He has also written for Youth Worker Journal, Decision Magazine, and the Christian Research Journal. You can follow Sean's blog at seanmcdowell.org. Again, that's seanmcdowell.org. You can also get his books on Amazon or wherever you buy books, and you can check out his blog at seanmcdowell.org as well. Well, welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Sean McDowell. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is a treat. I've been looking forward to it. You obviously grew up in a Christian home, but how did Christ become real to you in a personal way? Well, my dad, some of our listeners may recognize, Josh McDowell has written over 100 books. He's been with Crusade, Cancer State for Christ, for 50 years, and actually spoken live to more young people than anybody in history. So I just grew up in this home of learning kind of, you know, that the Bible is true and God exists and the Christian story from the beginning. And I always believed that. I never really had a reason to question then about my college years, which I think is typical for anybody of any faith background or no faith background to really start saying, do I believe this? Is this true? Does this make sense to me? And I actually went to my dad, not knowing how he would respond since he kind of spent his whole life defending and proclaiming Christianity. And I told him, I said, Dad, you know, I want to know it's true, but I'm not, I don't know that I'm convinced Christianity is true. And he looked right back at me and goes, son, I think that's great. And I was stunned. I didn't know <laughs> if he was going to freak out or get upset or I didn't think he was going to cry, but, you know, maybe my mom would. And and I thought he didn't even hear me. And he goes, no, son, I heard you. He said, you can't grow up just living off my faith. you got to explore for yourself what you think is true. You know, your mom and I will love you no matter what. And he said, I'm confident if you seek truth, you'll be led to Jesus because Jesus is the truth. Mm-hmm. And then he gave me interesting advice. He said, only reject what you've learned growing up if you're really convinced it's not true. In other words, he was telling me above all else to be committed to the truth, and that really freed me up. And now I'm teaching apologetics, so I obviously think it's true, but I just spent a lot of time trying to read both sides to be sure that I'm really believing what is true. That's phenomenal. I told your dad last week when he was on the show that when I was a teenager, I started having some of those same doubts, and I grew up as a missionary kid. We were overseas at the time, and I began struggling with a lot of doubt, and I talked to my dad, and my dad gave me one of your dad's books, A Ready Defense. <laughs> and that book helped me tremendously. So it's exciting that your dad helped both of us as we worked through some of that doubt. And I'm really glad 
that you are doing what you're doing today and helping others work through those questions because they really are important questions for people in college to work through. So I was going to ask, what was it like growing up with Josh McDowell as a father? I mean, that's quite the the deal. You know, it's interesting. When when you have a dad who's well-known in the public spotlight, at least for me, I don't look him, look at him through the lens of probably how other people do. Wow, we've famous written books on stage. I just look at him probably like every other kid does, looks at their dad. Is he around? Does he love my mom? Does he come to my sports games? And like every other dad, my dad is certainly not perfect. But the thing I loved about my dad is he always has been the same on stage as off of stage. He was gone a decent amount growing up, which was, was tough sometimes, but he put such effort in to love my mom, to love us as kids, to be involved in our lives, that the older I get, the more just respect and admiration I have for him. And he's really not only a mentor, but but a friend. So yes, he's Josh McDowell, and he's famous, but I really, truly don't look at him through that lens. I'm just grateful God's given me a loving father who's been able to model that and, and teach truth to me. That's awesome. Okay, well, tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now. You are teaching at Biola, and you're also doing ministry on the side, other types of ministry. I guess they're both types of ministry, and you're very focused on worldviews. So tell me a little bit about your current uh, ministry and your approach to the worldview issue. Sure. I taught high school at a Christian school for 10 years. I also wrote books and blogs for students and spoke around the country. So my heartbeat has really been students. Then about five years ago, I started working on a PhD, thinking that I wanted to move into kind of college and graduate school, which is what I'm doing now in bio as MA in Christian apologetics. But I also still teach one high school class, still write for students, and still speak a lot to students. So I teach in apologetics on intelligent design issues, historical Jesus, the resurrection, issues related to sexuality. I teach on those. But really, my heartbeat is equipping and preparing the next generation. Because I look at students today, you know, this generation who's just been raised as digital natives, they understand and see the world through a screen. That's how they interpret the world and interpret truth. And a lot of the ways we've done kind of parenting and teaching in the past just doesn't work anymore. So I think we really need to train this generation to think to have wisdom decipher between all the competing messages that are coming at them, you know, through just one click away through their phones nonstop. And yet I also think this generation will rise up to the challenge and they want to make a difference when they're presented with truth. So my heartbeat is this younger generation, but also to present truth in our culture in which we live a pluralistic culture, just with grace and with winsomeness and care for those who don't share my worldview. So tell me a little bit about a worldview. What is a worldview, and why is it so important? Well, worldview, the most simple definition would just be a view of the world. It's a perspective of reality. It's a belief system. So everybody has a worldview. It's impossible not to have a worldview. We all have beliefs about why we're here or why we're not here. We have beliefs about human nature. We have beliefs about happiness and the purpose of life. We have beliefs about God. And we live our lives, whether we realize it or not, according to those belief systems. Well, the reason it's important is because, look, truth, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If we have false beliefs, then we're living in a false reality that we cannot connect to and fully experience the power of 
you know, the world around us, so to speak. So false beliefs enslave and true beliefs set us free. Think about a map. If you're trying to follow a map and it's sending you to the wrong location, you keep getting lost, you keep getting frustrated. Well, if a worldview is like a mental map, then when we know what is true, we know what choices we should make to live in accordance with reality. Now, for Christians, we think it's particularly important because studies show that people who call themselves Christians and who do not call themselves Christians, there's really no statistical difference in terms of how they live. But Christians who have a biblical worldview, in other words, they see the world like Jesus does, are far more likely to live like Jesus does, give money to the poor, show compassion to people, and to live out Jesus' ethics. So it matters for all of us to just connect with the real world we live in, but in particular it matters for Christians, because if Christians are going to live the way Jesus lives, which we're called to, then we better understand the world as Jesus understood it to be. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah 55 that God's thoughts and ways are different than ours. And I think that's exactly right. If we're thinking differently than God thinks, then surely we're going to be acting different than God acts or asks us to act. And I think that it really gets back to this core issue. How do we see things? How do we process what's going on around us? So I I believe you're absolutely correct in the importance of a worldview. Now, the question that comes next is, of course, how you see the world is important. But why is the Christian worldview correct? I know a lot of people might say, oh, it's good. Or I hear students all the time. I work with college students also. And they say, well, I think Christian morals are good. I think that Jesus was a good teacher. But I don't believe that the Bible is actually true. What would you say to somebody like that? How can we know that the Christian worldview is actually true? The first thing I would say is it's not only Christians who claim to have the correct worldview. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks they have the correct worldview. Just this past weekend, I was hanging with a friend of mine who's an atheist, and we've been friends for years, and he thinks he has the correct worldview. I think I have the correct worldview. Buddhists think they have the correct worldview. Hindus, agnostics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, go down the line, everybody thinks they have the correct worldview. So it's not hateful or bigoted to try to help somebody adopt the worldview you think is true it might actually be the loving thing to do. So if my atheist friends are right and they see something that I don't see, then I ought to know that, and I ought to stop living in a delusion and embrace reality as it is. So one of the reasons I do apologetics and try to just lovingly and graciously persuade people that Christianity is true is because I think it's, I actually think that's the way the world is. Now, why do I believe that? There's a lot of ways we can go approaching this question, but ultimately it comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. It says in Romans 1, 4 that Jesus has risen proclaiming that he is God. I mean, this is powerful. There's a lot of different religious figures who've told us how to get to truth, who told us how to know truth, and pointed us towards truth, or pointed us towards God, but Jesus uniquely claimed to be God in human flesh, and that his burial, his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection would show this to be true to the world. And I believe it. This is a whole separate subject, but I think we have early documents and medical evidence showing Jesus died. I think we have good reason to believe he was buried. The disciples would not make up a burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the very person who was a part of the council that condemned Jesus to death if he wasn't really buried in Joseph's tomb. But then we have reason to believe the tomb is empty. 
I mean, the empty tomb, if you're making up a story, you certainly wouldn't do it in Jerusalem where Jesus was publicly killed. You'd go to another place where you can make up a story and nobody could verify the empty tomb. Yet the disciples within weeks go right back to Jerusalem. So there's an empty tomb. And then last, we also find all these people, not only Christians, but doubters like Thomas, skeptics like Paul, non-believers like it seems James was, and then huge groups like the 500 saying they saw the risen Jesus. And then I just finished my dissertation analyzing the lives and faith of the apostles. And what amazed me is their willingness to die because they believed they had seen the risen Jesus. We know with confidence that the apostles believed because they thought Jesus was risen. They're all willing to be persecuted for this. They're willing to die for it. And we know with confidence that some, in fact, die, and none of them recant. So the reason I'm a Christian, there's a lot of other reasons, but when it gets down to it, I think it's the resurrection that sets Jesus apart from any other religious figure who's ever lived. I couldn't agree more. I've often said if there was one thing that could stop me from following Christ, it would be proof positive evidence that he really never rose from the dead, that he really never conquered death. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that very thing. But the reality is the evidence is overwhelming for his resurrection. And if he really did raise from the dead, we have every reason in the world to follow him. I've told atheist friends that before. They get hung up on some small kind of obscure apologetical issue, and they kind of go at Christianity from that angle. I can't be a Christian because how could a whale swallow a man for three days, you know? Now I say, let's start with Jesus. You know, we can deal with those issues later. But you're exactly right. If Jesus rose from the dead... That's everything. If you're tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can go to the godsolutionshow.com. Again, that's godsolutionshow.com to see a list of the stations that we're on and the cities that we're in and to find out more about the show. Now, one of your books is Is God Just a Human Invention? and 17 Other Questions Raised by the New Atheists. And you have a compilation there of a lot of different essays and things like that. But I wanted to ask a few different questions from that book. Is that okay? Yeah, let's do it. I hope our audience members will uh, pick this book up and other books that you've written. But here are just a few. Is faith in God irrational? This is a big question that I get pushed back on all the time. People kind of tend to assume that faith means believing something without the evidence. Or as as, uh, Mark Twain said, faith is believing something you know ain't so. Well, that may be how some people use faith, but that's not a biblical understanding of faith. There's actually a quote I found in Houston Smith's book on world religions, where Buddha at least allegedly said, if anybody does a miracle, that person is not a follower of mine. Hmm. In other words, he's saying, if anybody tries to give proof or tries to give evidence that appeals to the mind, you'll know that person is not of me. Well, Jesus didn't kind of say, don't look for evidence. He didn't say, don't use your mind or empty your mind like certain forms of meditation. He said, love God with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. In the book of Isaiah, there's a conversation with God, and God says, come let us reason together. In the book of Acts, after the disciples believed they've seen the risen Jesus, it says they went out giving many convincing proof that Jesus had risen from the grave. So we can only please God by faith, it says in the book of Hebrews, but Christian faith is not a blind step. It's actually an intelligent step where the evidence points. So if you look at the example of Exodus chapter 7 through 14, 
where everyone knows the story of Moses bringing the people out of the plagues. What's interesting is how did what did God do through Moses to convince the people to put their faith in God and in Moses? Moses didn't blindly show up and say, hey, believe me, I speak for God. No, he showed up, he did 10 plagues, specific public evidences, and then he called the people to exercise faith. And what's interesting is if you go back and read Exodus 7 through 14, you'll see that for each one of the plagues, it says, you know, and the plague was done, or I'm sorry, and the plague was, was stopped, or the miracle was done, by this you shall know. In other words, a miracle or evidence was given to give the people knowledge, and then they would exercise faith. So Christianity, yes, we are called to have faith in God, but it's not an unintelligent faith. It's not a blind faith. It's actually faith based upon the character of God, how he's revealed himself to be, and the evidence of how God has revealed himself in nature, and also through the church, and also specifically through various miracle claims. So yes, we're called to faith. But Christianity is an intelligent faith. And everybody walks by faith. I mean, the atheist has to live by faith. Recently, Frank Turk on this program said, we believe in Christ and we walk by faith in light of the evidence, not in spite of the evidence. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. Okay, my background in college was in chemistry, and I love science, but I often hear the argument that science and the Bible contradict each other. What would you say to that kind of criticism? I think this is false for a couple reasons. Number one, if you just simply look historically, some of the greatest scientific breakthroughs have been by Christians motivated distinctly by their Christian worldview, or at least their theistic worldview, whether it was Kepler, Galileo, Newton, Boyle, Unran, even some of the great scientists today have felt like God created the world. It's an orderly, rational place. And he's given us the commission to care for the world and understand it. So historically, it's just false to say that science is against the Christian worldview. In fact, as Rodney Stark argues in his book, For the Glory of God, he says, while there were individual scientific breakthroughs in different cultures, it was only in a culture in Western Europe, which had been shaped by a Christian understanding of reality, that you could have the scientific revolution. And I think he's right. Second, if, if you read the Bible straightforward, there are some seemingly scientific contradictions, but what we have to do is make sure we properly understand the science. We also have to make sure we're properly understanding the scriptures. So when the Bible says, you know, the sun rises and the sun sets, people go, ah, that's a contradiction. We know the sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. And it's like, wait a minute, the authors are just using phenomenological language even today, people say the sun rises and sunsets, even though we don't think that contradicts the actual science. So I think when we go to, like, books of Genesis and others within the scriptures, it's very important that we understand what the original authors meant when they're speaking claims that could deal with science and when they're not. And I think when we properly interpret the scriptures, a lot of those conflicts go away. I actually think the conflict is not so much between science and between the Bible— but between naturalistic science and the Bible. So if you start with the premise, all right, God doesn't exist, now let's understand the natural world. Well, then you are going to run into a conflict with a theistic worldview. But if you start with how science has classically been understood, which is looking for the truth of the natural world, then I don't think there's necessarily a conflict between science and theology. 
Absolutely. Now, I mentioned Dr. Frank Turek, and he was recently on, and he talked extensively about the issue of gay marriage. You've also written on that topic. So what do you think of this current debate? I mean, this week we had the Supreme Court hearing arguments in favor of gay marriage and all this. What do you think of the current debate? I have a lot of thoughts about it. One is I think it's coming to the point of just dividing our culture in a way our culture has not been divided for a long time. So it's very important that people on both sides of this discussion listen to each other, understand the actual arguments that are being put forth, understand where people are coming from, and try to find common ground. Yes, I have strong opinions about this, but people on the other side also have strong opinions about this. And one thing I would say to people on both sides is in our culture and democracy, it's not okay to demonize somebody just because you disagree with them or you think it's wrong. So much of this debate, and it's been done on both sides, it's rather than listening to the other person's reasons, rather than understanding where they're coming from, we just call people names. We call people bigoted. We call people hateful. We attack their character. And, you know, I do have firm convictions that I've really thought about this issue. But I can tell you it's not because I hate people. In fact, I actually hold these convictions because I think they're true and I think they're good for people. Now, I have friends. We go round and round and disagree about this. I don't call them names. I don't attack them. I think they're wrong on their ideas, but I give them the dignity of really believing that they, they think they're right for one and that they're doing it for the right motivation. So I think in this cultural debate, the Supreme Court is about to decide on this soon. And I think, I mean, I could be mistaken, but I think it's pretty clear they're going to decide in favor of same-sex marriage to some degree or another. The question is, how is the church going to respond? How are citizens going to respond? And as a Christian, I think natural marriage between a man and a woman is the best institution for the sake of kids. But we have to have a climate where we listen to each other, we don't hate each other, we don't demonize each other for our nation to move forward. And it's time for the church to do exactly what you described earlier in this show that you saw in your family growing up. Your dad, being one of the busiest men alive probably, took the time to show <laughs> you love and to show your mother love. I think that's been the biggest problem in our culture, one of the biggest things that's destroyed a high view of marriage is so many Christian families not demonstrating that. I, I hope and pray that, that we'll be able to show the world those examples in our own families. So if somebody's listening this morning that is in the LGBTQ community, what would you tell them? I actually recently went to a conference called the Reformation Project, and it was led by Matthew Vines, who's the president, young guy who wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. And it was all about reforming the church to be really to affirm same-sex relationships. And I went there to learn. I went there to listen, not to rain on anybody's party. And they were doing all these presentations, and they broke, in, broke us up into smaller groups to practice role-playing what we had learned. Well, I'm in a group of about 20 people, and at the very front, the lady starts off, and she says, all right. We'd like all of you to share your story, why you care about this movement so much, and you know how you got involved in it. Well, I'm sitting there going, how did I get myself into this? Mm -hmm. I'm probably the only person in this whole group who has an issue with some of the theology being taught here, and I don't really want to get singled out. 
So one by one, these people are sharing, and I disagree with their conclusions, but my heart broke for so many people rejected by their family, rejected by their church, feeling rejected by culture. My heart just broke for them. And finally, they came to me, and I said, hey, my name's Sean McDowell. I teach at Biola University. And at this point, about half of them turned and looked at me like, who let this guy in the room? Because obviously, <laughs> knew Biola was kind of a conservative uh-huh. Bible school. And I said, the reason I share that with you is, actually, I said, I want to read something to you. And in the packet, they had a statement that said, um, you are welcome here. The program they gave out, you are welcome here. Wherever you are in your journey, you are loved and accepted here. I read that to them, and I said, now, I teach at Biola, so I have some real issues with this theology that I'm hearing here. But if this statement is right, does that apply to me? And they kind of paused and looked at me because they realized they had to say yes, right? Mm-hmm. They had to say yes to show true tolerance with each other and consistency. And I just said, look, I'm here because I've seen the church torn apart about this. I've seen the culture torn apart about it. I disagree with some of the things I've been taught here, but I want you to know this. Not everybody who thinks that homosexuality is a sin believes that you are, that hates you and is a bigot and is intolerant. I said, I'm actually a Christian and I love you and I care about you. And I'm here to listen and I'm here to learn and see if we can find some common ground. And that's all I said. And if there's listeners that are out there, I'd say the same thing. Please don't buy the lie that Christians who may view certain sexual ethics different than you do, hate you as a person, and don't care about you. We deeply care about you, and we want the best for you. And we love you, just as Jesus did. Now that brings me to probably the last question we'll have time to address here, and that is the Bible actually gives us these ethical codes, these realities of the world that is all around us. So when we talk about a Christian worldview, we really believe that what the Bible says about things like sex and marriage is correct. How can we know for sure what is right? It's this existential question. How should I live? How would you answer someone that says, how do I know I should live and why would I follow what the Bible says? Well, I would just start with the person of Jesus. I mean, there's a whole lot of passages and a whole lot of areas in the Bible we could explore. But the central question Jesus asked is, who do you say that I am? Some people call him a drunkard. Some people call him a prophet. Some people call him a demon. Others fell down and worshipped him as God. And there is something about this person, Jesus, the compassion that he had for sinners, the compassion for lepers, the dignity that he showed every single human being. And then the willingness that he had to die voluntarily to show love to other people, that's the greatest story ever. That's why movies that we love, when someone dies and shows sacrifice, it's like, yes, they gave everything we can. Well, that story is actually true, and it's found in the person of Jesus. So the person who wants to know if their life has meaning, pick up the Gospel of John and just read it and ask yourself, who is this person, Jesus? What is he saying about the world? And I think you might be pleasantly surprised that you're not an accident, you're not a mistake. And there's a God who truly loves you, and I believe does have a plan for your life. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on The God Solution today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience this morning? Oh, this was a lot of fun. I'm thrilled at what you're doing in your radio show. Thanks for asking good questions, being a great host, and giving me the chance to come on and hopefully encourage and bless your listeners.
Absolutely. I'm sure they will be encouraged. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Sean McDowell, and we'll keep in touch and hope to have you on again sometime in the future. All right. I'll look forward to it. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. See you, buddy. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Go to seanmcdowell.org. Again, that's seanmcdowell.org to find out more about Sean. Well, Sean talked a little bit about the reality that Jesus is reaching out to you today. If you're at a point where you desire to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says that begins with faith. I would ask you even this morning to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, expressing that through prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again to give me new life. Today, I put my faith and my trust in you, and I ask you to be my Savior and Lord, to come into my life and to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. The Bible says if you put your faith in Jesus Christ today that you've been adopted into his family and you can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a life of meaning and abundance here on this planet. Please go to GodSolutionShow.com to get this interview and all of our past shows. And while you're there, check out the list of local churches and find one to visit. It'd be a great way to take a step in your walk with God. Like I always say, an open mind, an honest heart, a humble disposition, and a diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful afternoon.